1861, Lieutenant George Nicholas Bascom made a big mistake. By not believing Cochise and digging in his heels, the headstrong officer set the powerful chief off on a path of havoc, killing, and vengeance. So much so that in 1865, a full four years later, a Chehani leader named Victorio flat out told authorities during peace negotiations that Cochise, still cutting a swath across southern Arizona and Mexico, would never be friendly with the Americans. By 1869, however, Cochise was aging. He had lost too many men in supplies. It was time to prove Victorio wrong. It was time to hash out whatever deal he could. So for the next three years, he flirted with making an official treaty with the Americans. But they always seemed to pull a Lucy and yank the football way right before Charlie Brown could kick it. And Cochise always ended up back where he started, where he had been since his run-in with Bascom, running into the hills, surviving for another day, and sending another wave of warriors out to raid and pillage. After all, who could stop him? That's why, if you were a betting man in the fall of 1872, you would have put all your money down against the small, eclectic group that ventured deep into Chaconan territory to seek out the man whose name was synonymous with Arizona's Apache problem. But against all odds, this would be the party that would finally and permanently establish peace with Cochise the Great and Terrible. And that's today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we covered the arrival in Arizona of General Oliver Otis Howard, the exceedingly pious one-armed Civil War veteran who felt it was his destiny to bring peace to the Southwest. And though he proved the old maxim that you can't please all the people all the time, he was actually pretty successful with setting up the San Carlos Reservation for the Pinal and Aravaipa Apache after a tense meeting between them, territorial officials, and Tucson residents. You'll also remember that he then proceeded east with nine Amerindians to meet with the Great White Father, or President Ulysses S. Grant. But by late summer 1872, Howard was back in Arizona and more than eager to get onto the next task that Providence had appointed for him. That's right, it's time for him to now make a peace with none other than Cochise, the Great and Terrible. Originally, he headed to Fort Apache and sent out feelers to see if he could induce the great, though ailing, chief to just simply come in and meet with him. Unfortunately, those he sent out returned without being able to find Cochise, let alone persuade him to come to Howard. So, the general decamped for Fort Tularosa, hoping to find some of Cochise's relatives or allies among the Chiricahua Apache that had actually made the journey to the reservation on the east side of the Rio Grande. Before setting out for Tularosa on August 30th, 1872, Howard and his party received word that there may be someone else who might be able to help him, a mysterious American said to be the only white man Cochise actually trusted. 
Once they arrived at the new reservation, they heard again that this one white guy could get them in front of the chief. So Howard sent men to find this one guy, while he spent his days listening to complaints from the Chihenis about being moved to Tularosa from Cañada Alamosa. Although he could make no firm guarantees, Howard would agree to inspect the former reservation to see if they could move back there. Unfortunately, that project got sidetracked when a tall, lanky, red-headed man with a bushy beard arrived at Howard's camp on September 7th. So I guess it's time now to dive into the myth and legend of Thomas Jonathan Jeffords. Tom Jeffords' early life is shrouded in a bit of mystery, with few firm details known. He was born in 1832 in extreme western New York, near Chautauqua Lake. During the 1850s, so while still in his 20s, he is supposed to have captained a ship on the Great Lakes, which is why people would refer to him as Captain Jeffords throughout the rest of his life. He drifted out west sometime in the late 1850s, apparently first to Leavenworth, Kansas, then to Denver, and then to Taos, New Mexico, doing a variety of jobs. After the outbreak of the Civil War, he became a scout and a dispatch writer, serving at the Battle of Valverde and then bringing messages to General Carleton in Tucson in July of 1862. And Carleton apparently took a liking to him and kept him on as a scout for the rest of the war. His post-war career is a little murky, but he did fall in with the newly organized Southern Overland U.S. Mail and Express Line, where he had ultimate responsibility for the route between Socorro, New Mexico, and Tucson. And it's during this time that the legend of Captain Jeffords begins. According to the most common telling, it was during his service with the mail line that Jeffords decided he needed to have a face-to-face with Cochise. The great chief's men were killing his mail riders, so he had to do something to make sure the letters, not to mention his employees, got through. He would later claim to have lost 14 men to the Apache, and that when he personally tried to deliver the mail, he received an arrow wound for his trouble. So, alone, he rode into the heart of the Dragoon Mountains to parley with Cochise personally. Captured and brought into the Chaconan camp, he impressed Cochise with his boldness by instantly turning over his guns to one of Cochise's wives, but made sure that she knew that he would need them back when he left. After talking and finding that they got along very well, Cochise promised that Jeffords' writers would be safe from then on out. And the two would become fast friends, and Jeffords recalled that Cochise nicknamed him Chickasaw, or what he describes as brother, while the band called him, at least this is what I think they called him, Tayazalaton, meaning Sandy Whiskers, while other Apache called him simply Taglito, or Red Whiskers, for his big bushy beard. That's the story, at least, and you'll find it in a lot of histories out there. However, Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney pokes a few holes in this tale, especially because we don't find it written down before 1913, and the versions that Jeffords himself gave to early state historians Thomas Farish and Robert H. Forbes differ enough to cast some doubt. And, for example... Some of Captain Jeffords' contemporaries give conflicting versions of how he came to know Cochise, some saying that he was trading with the Chaconans already, while others say he was trying to mine in Cochise's territory 
and made the relationship only so he wouldn't be set upon and killed while working his claim. Yet another account recorded from the Apaches themselves in the late 19th century say that Jeffords met with Cochise not because he had boldly rode into the mountains and was then captured, but because he had been captured and his life was spared only because of his boldness. Now, the date itself is also called into question. Jeffords undoubtedly worked for the mail line in the late 1860s, and Farish, the most common source for the legend of Thomas Jeffords, puts his first meeting with Cochise in 1867. But other accounts and anecdotal evidence pushes this meeting back to the fall of 1870, after Jeffords had left the mail line employ. Now, a difference of three years is usually hardly worth mentioning, but state historian Thomas Sheridan brings up the very valid point that if Jeffords didn't meet Cochise until the early 1870s, that means by the time they got to know each other, Cochise was already really starting to consider making peace with the Americans, which could go a long way towards explaining why he survived their first encounter. Also, as Sweeney mentions, there was the fact that the mail line kept being attacked even after the supposed 1867 truce between the two. Still, the legend of Jeffords had already begun, and he was known to be on friendly terms with Cochise. In fact, this legend would go on to be dramatized by author Elliot Arnold in his 1947 novel Blood Brother, which was then adapted into the 1950 movie called Broken Arrow, starring none other than Jimmy Stewart as Jeffords. There was also apparently a TV show a few years later. So remember everyone that sometimes it really does pay to do your own PR. Though I should note that not everyone had good things to say about this American who was suspiciously chummy with the Frontier's public enemy number one. Many held less than flattering opinions of Jeffords, claiming he was disreputable and an opportunist who would sell anything, including weapons to the Apache, for a profit. I mentioned back in episode 61 that Jeffords was apparently part of a smear campaign against an Indian agent, potentially because he coveted the man's job. There were whispers about how easily he came and went from Cochise's camp, leading to suspicions that he even raided with the Apache down in Mexico. Howard and his aide, Joseph Slayton, were warned that he was a suspicious character and to be very wary about dealing with him. But what could not be disputed by anybody is that he had gained the ear of Cochise, and if Howard was to have a prayer of meeting with the chief, getting Jeffords on board was a must. When Jeffords rode into Tularosa and learned that the general wanted to speak with him, he originally wasn't in any hurry to take the meeting. Like many, he took the general's extreme piety to be just an act, and he wasn't the biggest fan of all of Howard's professed humanitarian ideals. But Howard finally tracked him down to talk about the mission. This initial conversation is also part of the legend of Jeffords, and I'll pass along author and historian Paul Andrew Hutton's version of it. The general asked Jeffords to take a message to Cochise and arrange for a parlay. After taking a long drag of his cigar, Jeffords then replied, General Howard, Cochise won't come. The man that wants to talk to Cochise must go where he is. Do you know where he is? The general asked. I can find him, said Jeffords. 
Will you go to him with a message from me? The bushy-bearded scout drew another long pull from his cigar before finally saying, General, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take you to Cochise. Without missing a beat, Howard instantly replied, I will go with you, Mr. Jeffords. Now, for dramatic effect, other tellings have Jeffords first saying, and Howard immediately agreeing to, the other stipulation, which is that they had to go alone, with no military escort. But whatever the order of events, Howard's willingness to go himself without soldiers to meet with Cochise endeared him to Jeffords. His first act was to seek out Cochise's nephew, Chi, who was at Tularosa. Chi was the son of Coyuntura, who was Cochise's brother that had been hung during the Bascom affair and had been raised by Cochise himself. His sister, that is Chi's sister, also happened to be the wife of the Chihani chief Ponce, whom Jeffords wanted to add to the small party. So Howard, Sladen, Jeffords, and Chi left Tularosa on September 13, 1872. A week and a half later, on September 24th, they had located Ponce, enlisted him to their cause, and were in the newly formed boomtown of Silver City, New Mexico. Here, though, the presence of two Apache traveling with Howard and Jeffords caused quite a stir. As they left town the next day, they were stopped by a small vigilante force of six heavily armed prospectors. Here, Howard showed a lot of personal courage, stepping in front of Chi and Ponce and declaring that the men would have to kill him first. And believe it or not, killing a highly decorated American officer was a bridge too far for this group. They let Howard and the party pass, but James Bullard, whose brother had been killed by Cochise's band the previous year, rode away cursing the, quote, damnable peace policy, end quote. We are going to fast forward through all of Howard's comings and goings, but suffice it to say that once they got to Arizona, they were informed that Cochise was in the Dragoon Mountains, and that if Howard wanted a meeting, only he and Jeffords could go. The party by this point had picked up a few other people interested in its purpose, but all of these were sent to Fort Bowie to let the commander know not to send out any patrols for the next little while to avoid sparking an incident in the middle of the talks. Eventually, Howard's aide, Sladen, was able to talk his way into being allowed to proceed with the general. They then headed to the Sulphur Springs Valley before Ponce and Chi were able to get news to the other Apache. On September 30th, roughly two weeks after starting from Tularosa, two young Apache boys were sent to guide the party into Cochise's stronghold in the Dragoons. They were initially disappointed to learn that Cochise was not even there, but camped elsewhere. He would not come in person until the next morning. This made for a very tense evening, especially for Sladen, who left us his written impressions of his stay. But then, the next morning, word rang out through the rancheria. He is coming, Ponce related in Spanish, which many of the Apache around him picked up in some sort of a chant. He is coming. He is coming. When Cochise finally did arrive, it was with one of his brothers, his sister, his youngest wife, and his youngest son. Once in the camp, Cochise rushed to embrace Jeffords. At this, the scout motioned to Howard and introduced him, telling the general, this is the man, though I'm guessing Howard could have guessed that on his own by this point. 
Cochise then shook hands with Howard, offering him a simple buenos dias as a greeting. Before sitting down with his new guest, Cochise pulled Jeffords, Chi, and Ponce aside for, and I'm sorry, but I'm just going to say it, a quick powwow. Here's another bit we have of the legend of Jeffords that just makes it too tempting to Hollywood screenwriters. Cochise, wary as ever of Americans, asks his friend, will they do as they say they will? Jeffords responded back, well, I don't know. I think they will, but I will see that they do not promise too much. After this, Cochise spent about 10 minutes talking with Chi and Ponce, interrogating them about this curious one-armed army officer that had come with them. During all this time, Slayton was making careful observations, noting, like so many others, that Cochise was a finely formed man about six feet, with high cheekbones, keen eyes, and a Roman nose. His hair, according to Slayton, was still straight and black, though there was a touch of silver here and there. And even though Cochise was ailing and in poor health by this time, he did not seem to show it. Slayton also makes particular mention of Cochise's sister, who unfortunately appears to be unnamed in all my sources. She had been widowed some time beforehand, with one source saying that she was 40, but another saying she was closer to 50. Slayton notes that the great chief consulted with her on all important matters, and that she was the quote-unquote presiding genius of his outposts in the Dragoons. He further notes that she had, quote, strongly marked, unprepossessing features, giving evidence of a strong will, end quote. After these side interviews, everyone sat down in a circle, and Cochise asked Howard the million-dollar question, why are you here? To which Howard gave the standard reply. The president had sent him to make a peace with Cochise's people, and he would stay for as long as it took to do so. The great chief, as he was wont to do of late, made the statement that nobody wanted peace more than he did, leaving unsaid the part where it never seemed to quite go that way because of American duplicity. But seeing as Cochise was in a peaceful mood, talks began in earnest about how to make this peace actually stick. Howard pushed for Cochise to bring his people together with the Chihenis and that he would get rid of the Tularosa Reservation and have everyone live at Cañada Alamosa, which is where Cochise almost settled over the past couple of years. To everyone's great surprise, Cochise objected to going to Cañada Alamosa, saying that while he could go, it would for sure break up his band. But then he made a startling counteroffer. Why not give me Apache Pass, he asked, before quickly vowing to protect the road and see that nobody raided the stagecoaches. This was an absolutely surprising offer, as Howard had assumed the best he could get was for Cochise to remove to New Mexico. And initially he thought that was still the best option, as Cañada Alamosa was better suited for agriculture, and it would take Cochise and his hated Apache away from the angry mob that was the settlers in Arizona. Finally, though, seeing that he had a real chance here to do some serious good, Howard agreed to Cochise's offer. After all, he had been invested with presidential power to do pretty much anything he saw fit to keep the peace, 
so there was literally no one whose authorization he needed. However, Cochise refused to make a firm decision until he had talked it over with his captains, all of whom were out making a living, to use Cochise's euphemism. While his captains were being recalled, and fearing that they might clash with soldiers along the way, Cochise asked Howard to head to Fort Bowie at once and tell the officers there that a ceasefire was in effect. Howard suggested that Slayton go, but Cochise correctly judged that they couldn't guarantee that everyone would listen to Slayton, but they would have to listen to Howard. Beside, the chief graciously said that Slayton and Jeffords could remain with him while Howard made the journey, though no one missed the point that Slayton had just become a glorified hostage. After Howard finally agreed, Cochise ended the meeting by again recounting the exact reasons he went to war, which, as we know very well by now, all stems from the Bascom Affair. Considering that was 12 and a half years ago now, and we are still dealing with the repercussions, you can see why I felt the need to spend three whole episodes on it. Howard left Cochise's camp later that day, with Chi acting as a guide to get him to Fort Bowie. Slayton and Jeffords would spend a couple of tense days in Cochise's camp. Well, I should say they were tense for Slayton. Jeffords, used to coming and going from Cochise's camp, was probably unconcerned. Howard returned on October 4th, just three days after heading for Fort Bowie. While there, he secured 2,000 pounds of corn, some coffee, sugar, flour, and cloth to bring back with him. And though it perplexed the commander of the fort a bit, Howard had him send word to all other commanders in the territory to not send out scouting parties against the Apaches so as not to jeopardize the talks with Cochise. You can probably imagine how General Crook felt about those particular orders. Back at Cochise's camp, Howard and his small party waited another week while the various captains made their way back to the Great Chief. Slayton's writings about this time show him slowly beginning to understand and appreciate the humanity of the Apache. He marveled at the way they could use the land's resources, whereas a white man, he admits, quote, would have perished from want, end quote. He found the Apache women beautiful, enjoyed the food they served, and would even develop a taste for Tiswan, the corn liquor favored by the Apache and Cochise in particular. In fact, on that first night after Howard left, Slayton recorded how Cochise had become rip-roaring drunk and beat his wife and sister until Jeffords calmed him down. Finally, though, every captain had returned, except Cochise's son, Tassa, who was still raiding far south in Sonora. Fearing waiting any longer, Cochise started the council. At first, he met alone with his captains to discuss the offer. Being excluded made Howard nervous, and Jeffords had to step in to keep him from trying to sneak up to where the Apache were deliberating. But finally, everyone came together to sit down and hash things out once and for all. Howard recalled the Apache continuing to talk in their native language most of the time, though he did hear them use their name for Jeffords quite a bit, reinforcing the idea that Jeffords was the one American who was making this all possible. When the Americans finally jumped in, Howard made one more push toward moving them to Cañada Alamosa, but Cochise's mind had already been made up. 
he was staying in his beloved mountains. Howard eventually agreed to give the Cherokawas a reservation that started at Dragoon Springs and then headed northeast until it hit a point in the Peloncillo Mountains on the border of New Mexico. It would then follow the Arizona-New Mexico line until the international border with Mexico, then west some 55 miles before coming up the western side of the Dragoon Mountains. The Apache were also to be given food and clothing by the government, and no American soldier or civilian were to be allowed on their land. In exchange, Cochise pledged to keep his people on the reservation and to protect the all-important road to Tucson. And here also we have to once again get into the myth of Jeffords, because you'll often see it written that one of Cochise's stipulations for living on a reservation is that his friend had to be appointed as Indian agent. Cue scene here for Jeffords to protest that he wasn't the best man for the job, and that as a lifelong Democrat, he wasn't the best person to be appointed to serve under Republican administration. Finally, though, seeing the need for peace and to placate his blood brother, Jeffords agreed to serve the Apache he had come to know and respect. And end scene. However, Sweeney, who you might have noticed has gone a long way toward debunking a lot of the myth of Jeffords, says that in reality, Howard actually told Jeffords weeks beforehand that he wanted him to serve as the Indian agent, and that all of this had already been hashed out. I know, I know, it's less dramatic, but history is often just like a movie, except with worse writing, casting, and direction. However, you can't beat the production values or the on-site filming locations. While we are here, I'll let Sweeney debunk another myth about this meeting. We don't have a good idea of all the captains who reported to Cochise, but you'll often find Geronimo listed among them. Hutton, in his book on the Apache Wars, even says that Sladen noticed he was wearing a shirt that had once belonged to the unfortunately overeager Lieutenant Howard Bass Cushing. But Sweeney says Sladen made this identification based on the physical appearance of a certain individual helping with Cochise's translation. There is evidence suggesting that the soon-to-be-infamous Geronimo was present at this meeting, but there are also good indications that he was not anywhere near it. The man Sladen identified as Geronimo was more likely an Apache named El Cautivo, or the Captive, so named because he had been captured by Mexicans as a youth and held by them for many years. As you can imagine, that made him very valuable as a translator. So, unfortunately, it appears that we have no dramatic scene with Geronimo. Cochise asked that the leadership from Fort Bowie be brought to witness the final agreement, just so there was no mistaking his intentions. So Howard sent a subordinate to make the long slog to Fort Bowie and back again. He also took the opportunity to write Crook to let him know about the new reservation and how he was determined to see if the Chiricahua would really cease from making war. Finally, all the T's were crossed and the I's dotted. Supposedly, somewhere in between the talking, negotiation, and airing of old grievances, Cochise was convinced that an agreement was at hand. So, he is recorded as saying, quote, Hereafter, the white man and the Indian are to drink the same water, eat of the same bread, and be at 
peace. End quote. The prime movers in these talks walked away feeling pretty good. Cochise, who would be dead in less than two years, finally had the peace he wanted on the land that he loved. Howard, always one to give God the credit, was delighted that with divine help he had brought peace to Arizona for the first time since 1860. Jeffords also gave credit to the general, saying, quote, I doubt if there is any other person that could have been sent here that could have performed the mission as well. Certainly none could have performed it better, end quote. But while they were congratulating themselves on a job well done, the rest of Arizona held its breath nervously. Peace with Cochise had been tried before. Would this one hold? But it turns out it wasn't peace with the Americans they needed to worry about. No, the problem with the Chiricahua Reservation will ultimately trace back down into Mexico. But that is a story for another day. Join me next week, though, as we turn back to Crook. Now that Howard, the Christian general, had shown the Amerindians the carrot, it was finally time for Crook, known to the Apache as Chief Wolf, to show them the stick. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.